Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is not putting your brain up on a, on a shelf and then just taking a blind leap. Faith is not working yourself up emotionally to believe something that you're not certain is true. No, faith is trusting, it's resting, incredible testimony based on God's Word. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, Calling Men to Christ. How is it that 2,000 years after the fact, the name of Jesus is spoken more than any other name? How has the name of Christ perpetuated for over two millennia? Well, that is one of the things Pastor Carl looks at today as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. We are in John chapter 1, verse 35. Join us now as we begin. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, I want to speak on the subject of calling men to Christ. What we find here in our text of Scripture is how the worldwide ministry of Jesus Christ began. And it's a picture, not just of people who come to Christ, but how they come to Christ. So follow along in your Bibles as I begin to read our passage of Scripture. John chapter 1, beginning now in verse 35, where we left off last time. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. They came therefore and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. He said to him, Truly I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now let me begin by setting this passage in its chronological sequence. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, all the way down through verse 41, there's a record of four days that are recorded for us here in this passage of Scripture. And you can spot each day because there are various time markers that are dropped all the way through the narrative. Day 1 is verses 19 through 28, but then verse 29 is introduced with the words, the next day. Look at verse 35. It says, again, the next day. 
Verse 43, the next day. And so John is unfolding the week that leads up to Passover. We have four back-to-back days that in a very simple, straightforward, chronological order, the events are given. The next day, the next day, the next day, the next day. Now, if you remember, on the first day in verses 19 to 28, which we focused on last time, they sent a delegation from the Pharisees and they began to question and challenge John the Baptist. Who are you, John? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Precisely, who are you and why are you baptizing? That's day one. The second day begins in verse 29, where we have John's declaration. He said, I'm just a voice. There's one coming after me who is greater than I, of higher rank than I. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now here on days three and four, which we'll give our attention to this morning, we find the record of five men, each of whom was approached by Jesus Christ and the gospel message in a different way. We really have a picture here of how the worldwide ministry of Christ began. And again, what John emphasizes in this passage is not simply the fact that these men were called to Christ, but how they were called to Christ. Understand, people come to the Lord, obviously, in different ways. Uh, Andrew and John, in this passage, they're converted by the public preaching of John the Baptist. Simon Peter, through what we typically might call today friendship evangelism. Philip, by initiative or way of life evangelism. And Nathaniel, by apologetic evangelism. People come to the Lord in a wide variety of ways. And what we find here in this section are five men who meet the Savior. And of these five men, four of them specifically are named and one is unnamed. And of course, the one that's unnamed is the Apostle John. And for obvious reasons, because he's the author of the gospel. In fact, all the way through this gospel, he never uh, names himself. Uh, There's a pattern that he establishes right here in this opening book. And you might expect that. Because the whole theme of this book is to point men to the Lord Jesus that they might believe, and in believing, they might have life in his name. Notice in verse 40, he describes himself as one of them who heard John speak. When we come to chapter 13, twice over, he'll refer to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. At the cross, when he's given the care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, to take as his own mother, he's described there as the disciple whom he, Christ, loved. Uh, when you come to chapter 19, there at the crucifixion, um, he describes himself as the one who sees and bore witness of that guard who thrusts a spear into his side. At the tomb, in chapter 20, again, he's described as the one whom Jesus loved, and he calls himself the other disciple. And then three times in the epilogue, the final chapter, he's described as the one whom Christ loved, as the one who leaned back on his breast there at the Last Supper, and then as the disciple who bore witness of these things. So he's unnamed all the way through this book, in fact, through his epistles as well, and he's only named in the Revelation. Now, the first named person, you might want to circle it in your Bible, is Andrew. He's found there in verse 40. Also, if you'll drop down to, uh, in the same verse, by the way, you find Simon Peter. You might want to underline his name. Uh, Drop down to verse 43. There's another person, a fourth person named. It's Philip. We know very little about Philip. 
And the fifth person that's named in verse 45 is Nathaniel, and we know least of all about him. But let me just say a little brief word about these five men before we analyze the passage and think through some of the timeless principles that relate to your life and mine here in the 21st century. These men are all most presented in, in so many realms as almost superhuman, uh, you know, as quote-unquote saints. I remember uh, attending a church when I was a little boy, and the name of the church was called St. Peter's. And there in the front of the church was the statue of Peter in a long flowing robe with a halo around his head. And I said, wow, there's St. Peter. But understand, these guys, Peter, Andrew, Philip, John, Nathaniel, they weren't saintly. Oh, they were in the biblical sense in that every true child of God is called a saint. If you've been saved, God calls you St. John, St. David, St. Saint Bill, whatever your name may be. Every true child of God is called a saint by calling because God has declared you righteous if you have true forgiveness that comes through the blood of Christ. But understand that these were just ordinary men. They were not flawless. They were not specimens of perfection. They were people just like you and me. And they come on the page of Scripture here in a very human way. So let's examine the calling of each of these disciples, and we'll try to see some of the similarities and differences between each call. Consider first the calling of John and Andrew. The calling of John and Andrew. Notice uh, the record begins with John the Baptist in his wonderful testimony as he pointed men to Christ. Verse 35. Again, the next day, um, John, that is not John the writer, not John the apostle, but John the forerunner. John was standing with two of his disciples. And you can pencil there in your margin if you want Andrew and John. Those are the two that he's speaking of. Um, they weren't yet disciples of Jesus. At this point, they're just disciples of John the Baptist. Verse 36, And he, John the Baptist, looked upon Jesus as he walked and said to Andrew and to John, Behold, it means look, observe, behold, the Lamb of God. Now John makes it clear at the outset of this gospel what di differentiates the disciples of Jesus from the disciples of John the Baptist. And that is, John the Baptist could never be what Jesus is, namely, the Savior of man. And what we find here are two disciples of John the Baptist who transfer their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is exactly what John wanted. Jesus said there was no one ever born of a woman who was greater than John. Yet John never did a miracle. Never did anything spectacular, but the one thing that characterized this man's life is he pointed man to the Lord Jesus. He said in verse 8 of this chapter, I'm not the light, but I bear witness of the light. He bapt I baptize with water, but one coming after me is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He spoke of him as having a higher rank than he, that he wasn't even worthy to untie his sandal. He wanted to decrease that the Lord might increase. And so this change of allegiance is all that John hoped and prayed for. Now, we read last week the full message that John preached back in verse 29. There it says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the people of Israel, as you know, were familiar with sacrificials, uh, with sacrifices, especially that of lambs, not just for once a year on Passover, but also the personal lambs that they would offer on a regular basis to the priest for personal sacrifices. Now, those were lambs brought by men to men, 
But this lamb, the lamb of God, is brought by God to man. Those lambs could never take away sin. This lamb can take away sin. Those lambs were for Israel alone. This lamb is for the whole world. He's not a localized savior. He's not a Palestinian messiah. He is a savior of the world. Verse 37. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now let's analyze a little bit and think about what God used to call these men to Jesus Christ. They had been following John the Baptist. John had spoken of Messiah, what he would do, what he would accomplish. But as a result of the Baptist preaching, now they begin to follow the Lord Jesus. And it's really an example of what we today might call pulpit evangelism, where someone is saved through a preaching ministry. That is, a gifted and called person of God opens the Word of God, you hear the message, and in faith you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. It might be an evangelist, it might be a pastor of a local church, could be a Sunday school teacher. Well, John the Baptist is that kind of person here in the first century. He's an example of one who preached to the crowds, and at least two of his disciples noted here are an excellent example of pulpit evangelism. Now, notice carefully the verbs that are used here in this passage. You might want to underscore them. In verse 35, it says, John the Baptist said, underscore that verse. In verse 37, it says, the disciples heard, underline that word heard. And again, in the same verse, they followed. John the Baptist said, the disciples heard, and they, John and Andrew, followed. And of course, the message they heard was the gospel. There is God's Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The evangelism is centered on a person, namely Christ. And really, all good preaching ultimately is centered around the person of Jesus Christ. What the writer to the Hebrews called the cross of shame. Paul said, I know nothing, I preach nothing, but Jesus Christ in him crucified. So they heard the message, and in turn they believed, as seen by the fact that they followed. John spoke the truth of the gospel, and these two disciples believed because they heard the gospel. And by the way, that's a characteristic teaching that runs all the way through this fourth gospel. Again and again and again and again and again, John is going to emphasize that men must first hear in order for them to believe. And of course, the preaching that they heard was credible. It was a good testimony because it was based on the Old Testament scripture. This is not something John made up. The entire message of the Old Testament was look for the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world. And so that's what he's preaching. However, if you know God's truth and you don't share God's truth, it won't benefit anyone. Paul said, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how shall they call upon him in whom they have not heard? And so John will give us many illustrations of people who first hear the truth in order that they might believe the truth. In fact, when we come to the end of this gospel, Jesus, in a very succinct way, will drive home that point. If you remember in John chapter 20, uh, let me just remind you of what happened. You don't have to turn there, but there were 10 apostles, the 12 minus Judas, who had hung himself, and Thomas, who was not present. And they came that very first Easter day. And uh, the Lord appeared on that day, and, and then later Thomas came. And when Thomas came in the room after the Lord was gone, they said, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Just like John the Baptist, they spoke that 
of which they had seen. They were eyewitnesses of a resurrected Lord, and they said, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Now, Thomas should have believed on their testimony. He had no excuse for not believing. But he refused to believe, if you remember, unless he took his fingers and put them in the nail holes, unless he was able to take his fist and put it in the side of Christ that was wounded with the spear. Of course, the Lord condescended to Thomas's unbelief, but in condescending to his unbelief, he rebuked him. He said, because you have seen, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Now, he's not saying to us that we should not believe without any evidence, but that the testimony of an eyewitness ought to be evidence enough. They're preaching, behold, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. That should have been credible enough. The ten had seen him. Now, understand the nature of faith. H.L. Mencken, uh, many of you have read his works. He defined faith in these words. He said, faith is an illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. Now, his statement, like so many of his other writings, are clever, but it's not accurate because that's not a true picture of faith. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is not putting your brain up on a, on a shelf and then just taking a blind leap. Faith is not working yourself up emotionally to believe something that you're not certain is true. No, faith is trusting, it's resting, incredible testimony based on God's Word. I was witnessing to a man this week who was an unbeliever. I said, well, what is it that you think is keeping you from becoming a Christian? He said, well, I'm just not sure I believe these things that are written in this book. I said to him, well, have you ever examined the evidences for the credibility of the Bible? He said, no, I haven't done that. I'm not really interested in doing that. Well, you see, his real problem was not here in the mind, but here in the heart. But I said to him, for you not to examine the evidences for the credibility of Scripture, what you're really doing is committing intellectual suicide. I said, do you think people for centuries have been totally ignorant, snowed under, that this book we call the Bible is the Word of God, and they've just believed it blindly? And I shared with him some of the evidences to say that the Bible is the only book on the face of the earth that you can prove that God inspired. Understand, faith is not foolishness. It's based on the Word of God. And so the Bible tells us faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You never had faith. I never had faith. No one has ever had faith apart from the Scriptures. Now, certainly, at different times in human history, God spoke in different ways. Sometimes His Word, before the Bible was complete or as it was being written, came through dreams, through visions, through prophetic utterances, through theophanies, through voices out of heaven, through anthropomorphisms. But today, it's found in the 66 books of the Bible, period. You can't add to it, the book of Revelation says. You cannot subtract to it. And so there's a reasonableness to our faith. Credible faith is found in a credible testimony, and that testimony has been recorded for us in the Scriptures. Now, the earliest disciples we've seen just followed Christ because they heard the testimony of John the Baptist. But understand, his testimony was built on the testimony of Holy Scripture. Now, of course, there's no person today um, who can actually see the historic Christ, 
but we find a record, a credible record, from eyewitnesses written in both the Olds and the New Testaments. And so when John comes to the gospel, the end of it, he said, many other miracles Jesus did in the presence of his witnesses, of his disciples. But these, these signs that Jesus did, that he will say in his first letter, we saw with our own eyes. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So there's the written apostolic record of the New Testament apostles, and then there's the written record of the Old Testament. Jesus said of the Old Testament, the scriptures bear witness of me. And of course, he said that before the very first word of the New Testament had even been written. He was referring to the Old Testament. So it's not surprising when we come down to verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said, we have found him of whom Moses, that's the first five books, and the prophets, that's the rest of the Old Testament, we have found him of whom the Old Testament wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So John the Baptist spoke of what Moses and the prophets wrote of him. And so we really have a double testimony today. The testimony of the Old and the testimony of the New Testament scriptures. Now people say, well, I share my testimony. You know, I meet cultists, met some recently at my door. Why they come to my door, I thought they'd have it marked out a long time ago. <laughs> and this guy said, oh, but I had this warm feeling in my bosom. And he gave me the old warm feeling in the bosom testimony. And I said to him, like I say to so many of my Mormon friends, I said, your testimony means nothing to me. And I said it loving, but it means nothing to me. I said, your testimony and your feeling is no more credible than the feeling a Buddhist gets or someone who is involved in transcendental meditation. It's not authoritative. Only the scripture found in the 66 books of the Bible is credible. And once we get a hold of that truth, that the primary testimony that we are to share is not our own because your testimony can save no one. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. It doesn't depend on your testimony or my testimony. Faith depends on the testimony of scripture. That's what John preached. And that's what the preacher is to preach. Every pastor, every deacon, every elder, every Christian is to open the word of God and to say what God has plainly said. The text here says they heard him, they heard John, and they followed him, they followed Christ. They heard the testimony built on scripture and they followed the Lord Jesus. Faith depends on that kind of testimony. Now, notice, interestingly, the response that Jesus gives in verse. 38. When they begin to follow him, he says, what do you seek? That is, what do you want? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Now, it seems a rather strange response. Jesus asked, guys, what are you looking for? And they say, Jesus, where do you live? Why do they respond like that? Because that kind of question demands some thought for you to give an answer. So they say, Lord, where are you staying? Where are you living? We can give you an answer after we think about it and spend some time with you. By the way, this is an issue of motivation. That's what he's going to. He's going for their motive. What is it that motivates you to come to a church like this? Is it because it's a, a growing church and it's a great place to meet people and make social contacts? That's why some people come. Is it because... Um, 
Uh, it's a good place to build a business. We've had a lot of folks say they recognize us, the largest church in town. I'll go there and I'll build my multi-level marketing business. And that's their whole motivation for coming. What's your motivation? Why have you decided to follow Jesus Christ? So the Lord asked him, what do you seek? He's asking a very probing question. Now, his response is so neat. Verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see. They came therefore and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. That is four o'clock in the afternoon. And so uh, they stayed with him, the Bible says, for that day. This is about the time of Passover. You go to the latitude where Israel is this time of year in March, April, when Passover takes place. They stayed with him while there were daylight hours, about four in the afternoon. They had about four hours with the Savior. They heard John's testimony, but they wanted to hear what the Savior had to say. Can you imagine that being in the presence of, a sa of the Savior? A few months back, myself and about 100 preachers, for an hour, we were in the presence there in the White House of the President of the United States. And he spoke to us for over an hour. I said, oh, this is wonderful. But he's just the man. This is the Savior. This is the Lord God of the universe. And they are in his presence. And as we'll see in a moment by their testimony, they are changed. All right, that's how Andrew and John were called to Christ. They initially Heard the preacher preach, public pulpit preaching, as we might call it. But that's not the only way people find Christ. In addition to pulpit evangelism, there's what we call sometimes friendship evangelism, which brings us to the calling of Simon Peter. Look at verse 40 as the narrative switches gears. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, please notice what he did. He found first his own brother, Simon Peter. Now, here is a brother going to talk to a brother. And, of course, that's very normal and natural for you to have a burden for those closest to you, for those whom you love very, very deeply. Now, sometimes when we think of these guys, we think of them in subhuman terms. But based on the narrative here, this is very human, and I don't want you to miss it. Uh, they, they were with the Savior, Andrew and John, until about evening, until it was dark. And Andrew can't wait. He goes to Peter's house. It's the same day. It's not the next day yet. It's dark outside. Peter, we know from the Gospels, is married. He knocks on the door, and Peter probably thinks, who in the world is that? Is this hour at night? And he opens the door. He doesn't say, St. Andrew, why callest thou? <laughs> no. Uh, he probably says, Andy, what you doing here? What's up, bro? And he says, we found him. Who have you found? We have found the Messiah, which translated, John says, means Christ. Now, remember, it's a universal gospel. He's writing to Jew and Gentile alike. And throughout this work, he will drop these little explanatory terms because he knows everyone who is reading it is by no means Jewish. And the word Messiah, Messiah in the Hebrew, Christos in Greek, they are identical terms. They mean the same. The anointed one in both languages. And it's a title. It's not like Jesus Christ, Carl Brogy. No, it's Jesus the Christ, like Carl the pastor. It's a title. And Andrew knew for sure that the one who had been spoken of and prophesied in the Old Testament, that they had found him. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures 
at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 004. Maybe you have a question that you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.